call is now being recorded. We are SC Podcast. Gary Pasquitz joined by Daryl Rideau. Uh, Daryl, it is one of the more interesting days in modern USC history with the announcement this morning from Lynn Swan that he is going to keep Clay Helton as the head football coach. It is a decision that uh, to say that has been met with a lot of angst by the Trojan family would be an understatement. And so I, I, I want to start off talking about one of the statements that Lynn Swan made. Uh, it was actually one in the final paragraph of his statement. And uh, he talked about, I have heard from our many fans, and he appreciates the great fans and the passion that they have. Uh, Daryl, this decision that he made is going against the wishes of the vast majority of USC fans. And, and that is something that is always, when, when you do that, you're sticking yes. your neck out. Uh, you had better be right. And, and it's something that's definitely the case in this one. Yeah, and, and Gary, if, I, if we were to quote, just quoting um, that, like one of the last paragraphs where uh, <clears throat> Lynn Swan goes on to say, Coach Helton and I meet extensively each week to evaluate our program from top to bottom. We acknowledge and understand our deficiencies in areas that include culture, discipline, schemes, personnel, and staff. We agree that changes need to be made, and they will. We will improve and get better in all areas. Coach Helton has a plan in place to get USC back to the top, end quote. That's the area that caught your attention, definitely caught my attention, and that I think the, the, we've agreed that the focus of our podcast will be let's focus on that area since that seems to be as clear of direction since we've uh, come to know Lynn Swan at, as our athletic director, this is the first time that he's clearly identified areas that the program requires attention to details and improvement upon. And, and the one point that we both made, uh, and we will, we will discuss those points point by point uh, later on in the podcast, but saying Coach Helton has a plan uh, – the reason we are in this situation right now, the reason there is so much uh, dissatisfaction among the fan base is because of the results of the plan that Coach Helton has put in place over the first three years, uh, and three and a half years, really, of his tenure. And it, this has been Clay's show, and he has put it in place. He chose this staff. Uh, a lot of these players uh, are, are his right now. And, and I, I want to make one thing clear. Um, with this decision, Daryl, before we move too much further. I don't want to revise history. Uh, when we look at this, there was a lot of conversation in recent days, um, and this is not a decision I, I would have made. Uh, mm. When they're with the program and the, the place that it is in and the changes that need to be made, uh, I would have made a change in the, in the head coaching spot because of uh, the, the, what we're going to talk about. So I don't want to put anything out there that revises history. But – Clay Helton is staying, and this, they're saying this plan is going to be in place. And so let's go ahead and uh, and, and, and look at this. But the one thing that uh, – let, let, let's talk about another – I want to talk about another statement that uh -huh. uh, uh, he, he made. He talked about being a big believer in stability at the head coaching position. Right. I find that one admirable part of – Lynn Swan's background with the USC Trojans, with John McKay, 
And then with the Pittsburgh Steelers, boy, when you look at the Steelers franchise, what only having three head coaches in their tenure, you right. got to admire that. You got to appreciate how a Lynn Swan looks at that stability. And, and I've heard Lynn talk about talking to the owners, to the Roonies, mm-hmm. about stability and wh- why it's so important to their program. And so I get that part of it, and I appreciate it. Um, it, it Let's see how this plan works and how it goes, but I can right. understand why stability is important to him. Okay, um, there, there, there's a lot to eat off of just that. But, but uh-huh. when you talk about athletic director Lynn Swan giving Clay Helton a vote of confidence, I, I know there's a lot of discussion and talk about you know his three and a half years as head coach, interim title versus uh, permanent head coach, how he's taken this program to a Rose Bowl victory against Penn State, and then last year winning the Pac-12 championship only to fall short in the Cotton Bowl. Okay, There's too many instances we're saying we like Clay Helton, but dot, dot, dot. There's right. a lot of reasons why USC has never been a program where you can learn on the job, come up with the plan, scratch and erase that plan halfway through and say, well, I messed up. Okay, because throughout this body of work, when you knew that you had to replace a Sam Darnold, where was the development when you were blowing out teams or going up comfortably of you giving Matt Fink or Jack Sears those additional reps so that you can get them on wax, you can get them on film and prepare for the year to come? Developing players, taking advantage of bye weeks, taking advantage of um, um, spring scrimmages or fall camp scrimmages. So when you're when you're a Lynn Swan and you want to show loyalty, be careful on who you hit your wagon to, because let's remember that that Clay didn't come in under Lynn Swan. In fact, he's been in this program for a good part of nine years, and he's right. learned under the likes of a Lane Kiffin and a Steve Sarkeesian, developed bad habits, um, chipped away at. At, at things that, that they took away from the program, such as when they started to go to and recruiting heavily on receivers because of the uh, scholarship deductions due to the sanctions, there was some decisions made to take away or not recruit or recruit less of other positions. And as right. a result of that, the program has started to deteriorate and erode from its true identity which has always been a physical power um, <clears throat> a running school that was built from the inside out, from the de- offense and defensive line out to the skill players. So how or why should we believe that the plan that um, Clay Helton is selling us is going to result into any better results than what we've seen? And if such is the case, if he truly does have a plan and he's been meeting, as, as um, Lynn's comments say, meet extensively week in and week out to evaluate the program from top to bottom, why haven't we noticed these systemic changes occurring during the season to salvage what arguably um, was a winnable season that, that would have, from a, um, a strength of schedule standpoint, would have put USC in contentions for competing for a playoff berth? Even if they would have come off of a one or two game loss, it's how you lose. It's the style points that you lose by that keeps you in the argument and in the discussion. Right now, this is a five and seven mediocre USC team in a Pac-12 conference that is down. 
So it's it's a head scratcher that you're going to hit your wagon to this. But then the second part that you made, Gary, um, it almost you almost get the sense that if they're trying to take a chapter out of their opponent from Saturday night, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, and they're looking at um, uh, the athletic director from Notre Dame, Jack Sporbrick, I'm almost wondering if did Lynn perhaps go see him before the game and ask him, hey, you went through a similar situation when you were considering getting rid of Brian Kelly, but you elected to keep him. What were some of the contributing factors to that? Because when I listen to those point of emphasis of areas to improve this program, and then I read an article um, in the Sports Illustrated uh, by Josh Peters that kind of gives the chronology of the decisions that Swarbrick made and why he decided to retain uh, at the, uh, Brian Kelly. It, the, the parallels are too similar. But there is a difference in the experience in one head coach versus the other, wouldn't you say, Gary? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, one, yes, because one head coach has considerable an, uh, an, right. uh, amount of more experience who warrants a benefit of doubt. But do we really know if Clay has it in him to overcome some of these systemic challenges? That gets into the part of, Clay's instincts and Clay's original plan and what he knows put us in this place, um, put us in this fan dissatisfaction. And one thing I've always said, Daryl, the USC Trojan football fan is an educated football fan. Right. We, we, we've, seen, we've seen good football. Uh, we know good football, and uh, we, we, we know what is the USC style of football that has worked through the years. And you brought up a point in that Clay Helton has been here his entire time at USC has been here either under Lane Kiffin right. or Steve Sarkeesian or, or himself as, as the head coach. And uh, the, the toughness standard, the physical standard has slowly gone away and changed yep. in that time. And, and, and that, that is as important as anything. And we, when we start get talking about culture, that, that's the number one thing I'm going to want to address. And Clay Helton came in talking about, I want to establish a physical run-first football game. And I don't think there's any way, shape, or form that you can say that that is the identity of USC football right now. And, Gary, if you've ever listened to – if our fan base, which is a very knowledgeable fan base, and that's why um, I question – the timing and um, the conviction by which Lynn Swan is endorsing Clay Helton to return, when our fan base wouldn't take the liberty of hiring a plane to signal and indicate and voice its frustration because they feel as though their message has gone on deaf ears. So to make this type of public statement, uh, dear Lynn Swan, please fire Clay Helton. And you ignore that without giving us a reason to feel why he should re remain. Considering this game that we just saw against the Fighting Irish, when, once again, our Trojans, who came in as a 10-point dog in this game, showed the fight and the might of why, against anybody in the country, they can contend on a one-game basis. 
but it becomes the challenges become glaring when you start looking at the in-game adjustments as the game wears on, and you see one team make those adjustments coming out of halftime, and another team is still stuck in first gear, and they can't seem to get out of their own way. And when problems arise, that's when the the um, <clears throat> the glaring in efficiencies or deficiencies start to rear its ugly head, such as false starts, untimely turnovers untimely because there's no emphasis on ball security and uh, pass interference in unsportsmanlike conducts. We see it far too often uh, since Clay Helton has taken the helm. You can make the argument that they've had at least one pass interference or unsportsmanlike conduct in every game. And that's a bad omen when you're leading the Pac-12 in penalties. That that's a mark of a team that is undisciplined and has gone unhinged. So, as we look and really dissect, what could your what possible what is what possibly could be um, a plan to implement without there being wholesale changes at coordinator positions and actually placing key personnel at the coaching positions in their proper place. If you look up and down the roster uh, in terms of Clay Helton's coaches, Gary, you'll find at the time offensive coordinator T. Martin, who is an offensive coordinator but isn't coaching the quarterbacks. Instead, he's coaching the wide receivers. You see who a uh, true wide receiver coach in, in Kerry Colbert coaching tight ends. Uh, when Clay took over, Johnny Nansen was the running back coach at the time. Now he's on the defensive side. You bring in – uh, Tim Drevno, and Drevno uh, is regarded as an offensive line guru, but yet he isn't even coaching the offensive line. He's coaching the running backs. So I'm a little confused. You know, how do you expect to get the most out of players if you don't even have your own coaches coaching in their proper elements where they can be as successful and, and they can actually develop the players the way that they need to rather than relying upon a scheme and hoping that the players can athletically make up or mask for any uh, deficiencies. It's very, very puzzling to think that Clay Helton has a plan that could address these issues when you look at his coaching staff and they're not even in the proper place. And and, and last night was so symbolic uh, in so many ways of, of where this USC program is at, the, the first half showing the athleticism that, that is there to play with anybody. Um, the second half showing the issues that are there that have been there so many times this year uh, to not respond to adversity, uh, to not right. respond in the second half. The, the inability to score and put points on the board in the second half uh, has become such an issue in the second half of the season uh, that you can't ignore that. And, and, and to me, one of the biggest things that I was talking with, a, a, and you and I both are talking with a former USC great recently, and, and hearing one of the things, and, you know, the Trojans lost the game last night. The Trojans lost many games this year. And, and one of the things we hear from Clay Helton immediately in the post-game press conferences uh, is immediately start emphasizing the positive. Boy, this player played so well. Michael Pittman right. had so many catches. You know, Tyler Vaughn's what a night. JT Daniels, look what he did. You lost the football game. That's not the time to celebrate what happened. No, no, you can do that at a Tuesday press conference after you've watched the film. 
but as this great um, legendary player that you and I have both spoken to um, regarded Clay Helton as a great deflector. It's one thing to be positive, but it's another thing to be so positive that you mask the mistakes and you weaken your team because you don't hold them accountable for the mistakes that were made. All of a sudden, it becomes okay and acceptable to be mediocre. It becomes okay and acceptable to drop passes in practice or not follow through or finish up or take on a block with the correct arm. Okay, so when you start looking at these little systemic things that continue to rear its head in a game, when you need a stop defensively to get the ball back to the offense and your defense leaks out a quarterback or you allow a running back to pop one on third and short, these are inexcusable when a team recognizes and understands what they're playing for and the situation at hand. And there are too many examples, Gary, that reared its head in this game that lead you to believe that that there is a reason why the fan base was crying out. So if you're Lynn Swan and you're going to take the high road and you're going to go back to your roots, um, being uh, playing under McKay, the 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 um, the pedigree of consistency, and then playing for the Roonies in, in Pittsburgh, and you're going to show that loyalty tag. Well, then what changes are you going to make that are going to correct what we're seeing? And what belief do we have that Clay recognizes what those are? But if the two of you collectively, since you meet extensively each week to evaluate the program from top to bottom, have identified these areas, at what point was it determined then, Gary, that it's too late to make these corrections? So then are you tanking? Because, or are you competing to win football games? Or are you just happy with stats? Last I checked, fantasy football was in the NFL. It wasn't in, in college. So the numbers don't matter. The only thing that matters is wins and losses. And, and right now, when your opponent leaves the game and shrugs their shoulders because they, think that they were expecting to, to have a hard-fought physical game against the Trojans, and they leave feeling as though you're softer than Charmin. That's a bad rap. And the only thing, there's, there's nothing worse than being considered a soft football player because that's a mark that sticks with you and, that, and it resonates. And, and when you start to get that type of a reputation and you allow teams like Utah to whip you up and down the field, well, you start to lose your edge. And when you lose your edge, it starts to affect you in every other category. So, Clay really has to do some soul searching if he believes that he's the true leader of this program. But he has to start by being honest with himself and give himself the best opportunity to develop this program and get away from the friends and family relationships. Dig beyond your own Rolodex and ask for help if that's what it takes. Yeah, there was a comment from a head coach of a team that USC played in 2017. And uh, it was talking with a, a former player from USC in the offseason, and uh, uh, he was asked, what do you think about the Trojans? And he made the comment, Daryl, softest team we played all year. You should never that, – that, that should never utter out of a coach's mouth when you're playing the Trojans. Win, lose, or draw, there should be the moniker of, of, of 
what used to be when USC played Stanford the week after, one of those two teams, you can almost chalk it off as a loss because the battles were so tough in the trenches that the teams were physically beat up. But now when USC is regarded as soft, teams are circling that as a bye week for themselves. Because if I'm Brian Kelly in this game, as poor as Notre Dame played or as physically um, equally matched as USC was in that first half, I have to imagine that uh, Brian Kelly told his guys, look, in the second half, and I don't know this to be a fact, but if it were me, I would have said this to the team if I, if, if I were Brian Kelly. In the second half, let's get back to running the ball and playing Notre Dame football discipline. I guarantee you these guys will find a way to give the ball up or find a way to quit. Don't make it easy for them. Make them earn it and make them have to beat you. Because up until now, this USC team in 2019 has not demonstrated the discipline that it takes to finish out games. Okay? Nobody's remembered for what you do in the first half. You only remember for how you finish. And that was a point of emphasis under my head coach, Pete Carroll, and under, and I have to believe, under a John McKay-like coach team. Okay? You go to any winning program, and the emphasis and the attention to details is on finishing, finishing, finishing. Start fast, finish strong. We are not seeing that, Gary. And, 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 and you talked about this program becoming soft. Well, you don't even have a fullback on your roster. And you don't practice. You don't really uh, – they don't hit in practice. So how can you prepare and condition your body physically for the grind of a football game if you're going to treat 18- to 22-year-old players like they're 15-year vets in the NFL? You cannot do that. You have to train and condition players to compete every day in practice so that practices become harder than the game-like situation. But too many times are the players shocked by the speed of the game from their opponent because they're not physically conditioned or prepared to handle that type of physicality. That's why we're seeing so many injuries. Okay, These are just – I couldn't even tell you it, it, when it's a glaring injury. Oftentimes, it's a nagging injury that comes up because these players aren't conditioned for the type of hits that they experience in the game. I, I think we first started to see that when you talk about the uh, the non the non responses in the second half. Uh, Stanford and Texas this year, Daryl, were really to me the Stanford game. It was just so shocking to see Stanford pull away and USC not respond. Same thing right. happened in Texas yep. in, in the second half. And then it became a consistent pattern. Uh, and like we talked about, the inability to put points on the board in the second half, it just became a, a trademark of the USC team But but by the end of the year. And like you say, that's just not something that, that is sound USC football. It, it, and it's not. And, okay, if I'm playing contrarian or devil's advocate, um, mm -hmm. And and I'm going to give Clay the benefit of doubt, which is clearly what Lynn appears to be doing, or uh, Mr. Swan, sure. as as uh, Clay would call him, and he's earned the right to be regarded as Mr. Swan. So I don't want to be disrespectful to his name. Okay, so if you're going to give Clay the benefit of doubt, you have you you should look no further than the recruits that he brings in, and the fact that coming from. Um, from the guys that should have been returning last year that are no longer on this team, that have no correlation to an injury, 
but are non-football related, perhaps conduct issues that have um, removed them or isolated them from this team. You can look no further than the likes of a Jack Jones, promising mm-hmm. defensive back who uh, USC had high hopes for opposite of Biggie, uh, Biggie Iman Marshall. Okay, you look at Bubba Bolton, who was penciled in as a starter uh, in the secondary, but was removed from the team due to disciplinary reasons. Achille Ross throws a tantrum in practice, and he likes to quit. Okay, and then you look at a, a reserve player who was just starting to come into his own, but comes from a huge football pedigree, in a Levi Jones, also removed from the team for disciplinary actions. Gary, that's a lot of production. That's that's four or five star talent that you're not being able to 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 utilize on this team, and they're all removed from your team due to non football reasons. Well, that has to fall on Clay's head, and Clay has to take some ownership to that. I understand you have a hundred man roster, but when you develop a culture of of winning in a culture of of developing players the right way on and off the field, that becomes a part of your program. When you look at the football obituary of Clay Helton right now, it's scribbled in stone. You got four primary players that are leaving your program for non-football reasons, and yet you've given us no answer or no logical reason as to why this has happened so frequently in a short amount of time. And I'll, and I'll go to another area of discipline. Uh, th- there was an incident that really stood out to so many of us earlier this season. Uh, it was in the Colorado football game. Uh, it was at a break, I believe, between the third and the fourth quarter, yeah. where the defense was on the field, and, and a photographer had the camera aimed at them, and, and they posed for a photo uh, that, that was put on social media. Uh, and I posed the question to you before we started this podcast. Uh, can you imagine your defense under Pete Carroll posing for a photo during a game and what would have happened when you got to the sideline and faced Ed Orgeron? Well, first of all, Ed Orgeron would have turned green like the Incredible Hawk. And while and, and for those who, who might have seen the meme of him after they just lost, uh, he's now coaching the LSU as a head coach. They just lost to Texas A&M in seven overtimes, 72, 74 to 72. Um, and you see the frustration and reaction on his face. Let him be a part of this coaching staff and see players on the defensive side of the ball line up and pose like that and be as disrespectful as they were. But I don't ever believe, Gary, if it was my error, uh, from 99 to 2002, primarily the last two years, where our culture changed. When we left Paul Hackett and we went over to Pete Carroll, the players would have policed that. I could have never imagined myself, nor a Troy Palomalu, a Matt Grudegood, a Sean Cody, Kenichu Desi. I could have never imagined Frosty Rucker, who, who was on the team, but he was redshirted at that time because he had just transferred in. None of right. these guys would have ever had the audacity to be disrespectful like that and pose. I understand that this is a new error, but that has no place at USC. It, it was just blatantly disrespectful, but the part that I'm most disappointed about is where was the leadership from the coaches that broke it up, that got them back on track? Instead, what did we see? A few plays thereafter – Colorado got hot, 
marched down the field, and there was a passing or their unsportsmanlike conduct on the sideline. The moment you, you, you take your mind off the game and you pose like that, you start to lose your competitive edge. And once you lose your competitive edge, it is hard to dial it back up. And that's, again, we talk about um, the, the erosion of this program by blades of grass, by inches, by yards. Chip, 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 chip. A lot of these things start chipping away at why this program has fallen to five and seven. It's not due to talent, but it's the overall culture that is now manifesting itself. And it starts with when you're on a recruiting trail. And you're, every conversation you have with the player is a com- it's an opportunity to develop an intimate relationship with the inner thinkings of a player who is being recruited. How they deal with success and failure. How they, how they deal with losses and victories. How they deal with being recruited. And trying to determine, is this guy, is this person, is this young man um, the right type of person for our program? So I have to question, when you're going out on the recruiting trail and you're scouring the country, are these things that you have in mind as you're evaluating your program so that you can avoid losing four, four, five-star players due to non-football-related reasons, conduct detrimental to the team? It's inexcusable and it hurts your program when you lose that type of production and you have nothing to account for it thereafter. But you know what, Gary? That puts a huge premium on the development of your second and third string players, getting them ready for the next play, getting them ready to play in the game. Because if you were to pull uh, the likes of a number 17, Chase Williams, before the season started, when he came in as a, uh, as a true freshman coming in as a corner, and you mm-hmm. told him that he would be starting the game at free safety for Marvell Tell of the third, or the likes of a kid, I didn't even know he was on the roster, Jordan, Jordan McMillan. McMillan. Kudos to this kid. Johnny on the spot comes out, and what's his background, Gary? Uh, Loyola High School, and he's a walk-on freshman. A walk-on freshman. A walk-on freshman. Prepared. Okay? But you couldn't tell me that he had one quality rep all season long. So you're hurting your team. You're doing them a disservice because, yeah, they showed up in moments, but it's not the big moments you need them to show up. It's the consistency of their play. When Notre Dame made those adjustments, you found guys out of alignment because they weren't getting the reps. They didn't know what arm to fit when the when the hole shifted from the A gap to the B gap, and now you have to replace, and you have to spill versus contain. These are all little things that you only benefit from when you create these elements in practice, and you have coaches who are developers of young men, getting them developed and prepared mentally, physically for the grind of a game. But when you have coaches coaching out of position, they're going to default to what they believe they know, which is X's and O's on paper and on film, teaching a concept as opposed to teaching technique within the concept, which allows for players to play free. I oftentimes question with these schemes, are these schemes offensively and defensively really designed for the starting personnel that was coming into the spring? Because if it was, and you look at the starting lineup then versus middle of the season and end, oftentimes it's a carousel of players coming in and out due to injuries, due to a number of factors. 
So how flexible is your system to plug and play, guys? Or defensively, if you're Clancy Pendergast, will you adjust your system to the personnel that you have? When you're playing a, um, um, EA, which is uh, – how do I pronounce his name? Pa, uh, Pala EA na ote ote. Pala EA na, na, na ote ote. When you have two Mike linebackers or middle linebackers playing alongside each other because he's now replacing an injured John Houston, it's important that you now change your scheme to adjust their skill set. Instead, Clancy at times can be very stubborn, and when he fails to adjust and react to what the opponent does, it leaves gaping holes, and we're scratching our head on a must a must-win battle third-down situation, and you're giving up a big play because the run fits were not there. Well, where was the emphasis in practice? So, again, everything correlates to how you prepare for the season because there's only a limited amount of time on a week-to-week basis. So your foundation has to be intact, the disciplines of it, because all week is a dress rehearsal of what you were doing during spring and camp. And, and Gary, as we look at those areas of emphasis – that the likes of a of a Lynn Swan and a Clay Helton identified, we have to wonder. The deficiencies oftentimes start at the top. So will you be making wholesale changes at your coaching position to bring in teachers to develop schemes which will benefit the personnel that you have? And to what extent are you going to expand on your, your staff so that you can you know you can better evaluate the talent? Uh, There's a number of areas where you can make the argument that in every game, USC at one point either had a lead or or was close to maybe taking the lead. And because these glaring issues continue to surface, they find themselves uh, digging a deeper hole and playing hero ball. And that's not a a recipe. That's not – you can't win with that. The season next year gets no easier with the likes of a Fresno State. You're not missing Washington and Oregon next year. So you have to be prepared to go to South Bend and play Notre Dame. You look at that schedule, non-conference, and then you look at the teeth of the Pac-12. You better be ready to go from spring on. You can't wait until camp breaks to determine what direction you're going to go from the top down at the quarterback position and hold the rest of your team hostage. So, as you can sense, my frustration is the same frustration that we sense from our fan base as the message boards light up in disbelief that Clay's coming back. But if he is coming back and they truly do have a plan, I have to wonder, Gary, does that plan factor into bringing in a veteran-like offensive consultant or offensive coordinator, like the likes of a Tom Moore, who we've seen um, alongside Lynn Swan at the the Notre Dame game um, in the Coliseum. And as I was walking up the huddle, I mean walking up the tunnel, uh, getting ready for the press conference, I had made with maybe five paces away from Tom Moore who was in front of me. Now, my experience with Tom Moore, when I was undrafted with the Colts in 2003 and 4, he was the offensive coordinator for the likes of Peyton Manning. And after Peyton Manning, he had um, Carson Palmer in Arizona the year that Carson had a prolific um, all-pro year, 
where 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 they you know they had a, a nice run in the playoffs. When you think of the likes of somebody like a Tom Moore, Lynn Swan reaching out to him, you have to wonder if that's the direction that Lynn may consider going to bring a, a, a veteran set of eyes, a Norm Chow-like set of eyes to the press box to give Lynn complimentary pieces to help him tell a better story when it comes to play calling and almost, you know, understand how to use certain personnel. And if Tom Moore is going to become a part of that, or maybe it was just, you know, a, a pass through, who knows? I guess we'll find out very shortly in the next upcoming weeks. But if that's a step in the right direction and that's a part of the plan, I can roll with that. But if we don't see anything, Gary, it's going to be very hard for me to stomach to think that that Clay alone, his plan can be implemented without making wholesale changes to his staff. Oh, wholesale changes to his staff, to to the practice schedule, you know, to to player identification. And when you talk about the practices, I think that's something that USC fans, you know, judging by the practice reports and and, and what 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 we tell them that we're seeing in practice. And when you are going in full pads one day a week, and you are only having one session of full contact, uh, when you're having fall camp scrimmages, you have three of them. And uh, you have one in the Coliseum that is yeah. about 60 plays, and you have another that was uh, each quarterback got about 20 plays, and then the third was basically a dress rehearsal. The, the, these were your scrimmages of fall camp to get ready. And, and again, that, that was Clay Helton's instinct as a coach to do. So, no, if you're all of a sudden going to tell us this is going to get turned around, Okay, what what are going to be those plans? How are practices going to be handled? Uh, Daryl, when we walked into practice the other day uh, on the Tuesday practice of Notre Dame week, it was shocking to open up the door and just feel no energy. No low energy. Amount of energy. And it is this very is- hard, and we talked about this before, but it's worth mentioning again. Um, although Clay has coached north of 23, 24 years, right. his prime years of coaching at USC were under Lane Kiffin, Steve Sarkeesian, under a scholarship reduction. He didn't have the benefits of a Pete Carroll, um, of a veteran head coach that was very confident in, in, in who he was as a head coach and really understood the significance or importance of practice. Instead, under those two coaches, we saw, we, we noticed and observed them start to dial back. And again, if oftentimes in anything that we do, we're always going to resort back to what we learned and what we know. And if that was Clay Helton's um, teaching or integration into SC football, then he's sadly mistaken. Because the emphasis on practice to a man in every generation because the talent level of what you recruit is oftentimes great, the greatest comparison I can make to what I've come to learn about USC before I got to SC and while I played at SC is what you see at Alabama and perhaps Ohio State and Clemson. Practices are so challenging and so demanding that you don't even think about what your opponent is doing because you're too worried about making sure that you're sharp and on edge because the guy behind you might wally-pip you may come in and take your job. 
So you're fighting, scratching, and clawing and preparing to make sure that you can sustain your starting role because the guy behind you might be the next Clay Matthews who was a walk-on and earned a scholarship even though he came from a great football pedigree. But he played with the likes of a Brian Cushing and a Ray Malauga and a Keith Rivers. You know what I mean? And, and a Thomas Williams. All these guys, not every one of them started right away, but they all had careers that extended into the NFL. Practice is so important. The tempo that you set, the attitude, the demeanor. And when I talk about it builds toughness and callous, when you go into a game and you're used to competing at such a high level in practice because you're going up against such great players opposite of you, it simulates what you're going to go up against in practice, I mean, in a game-like situation. And oftentimes, I left games feeling like, man, that was easy compared to what I have to deal with on a week-in and week-out basis going up against the likes of a Mike Williams or a Kareem Kelly or a Kerry Colbert. I had every body type in practice that I can simulate against going up against my opponent. If it was Washington and I was going up against the likes of a Reggie Williams, in practice, I'm covering you, Mike Williams. You guys have the same body type. If I needed speed, I'll cover Kareem Kelly. If I needed somebody with great hands and and that was a a great route runner, I'm going to cover Kerry Colbert. I had all of that. USC has all of that in practice. Amon Ra St. Brown. They have the speed in that. They have the size in Michael Pittman Jr. They have great hands in Tyler Vaughn. But yet, we don't see that competitive nature by finishing in a two-minute drill at the end of every practice to make sure you left on a high note and you were emphasizing what you needed to emphasize. So I do think it is time that Clay brings in coordinators that have head coach-like experience so that he can learn from them. Manage the program, but allow your coordinators to coordinate practices and orchestrate the things that you can continue to draw and learn from. You don't have to be perfect, but understand and recognize where your weaknesses are and mask your weaknesses by bringing in people who who carry those strengths and traits. If you do that, you'll win me over and a lot of people in the Coliseum. You don't do that, it's going to be shallow grounds for a while in that Coliseum. I'm going to be very interested to, to see where that goes in terms of the areas of player development. Uh, let's face it, a, any player that comes to USC uh, has a realistic chance to move on to the NFL and has a chance to move on to the NFL at a high level. Uh, USC's history of producing NFL draft choices uh, is n- num- number one in the nation. Uh, speaks for itself. But that has fallen on hard, harder times since the Lane Tiffin, Steve Sarkeesian, and Clay Helton era. And, in fact, right. if you look at, at under Clay Helton, uh, there have only been two first-round draft choices, and that is Adoree Jackson and Sam Darnold. And I don't think you could point to either of those two players as saying, oh, they, they were developed on the USC practice field. And those right. traits, like, like, like you talked about with those four linebackers, um, you know, the Malaluga, Cushing, Rivers, and Matthews, and I'll even throw Kaluka Maiava into that. Right. Uh, those, those players were developed on the practice field and it paid off for them personally with high NFL draft choices. That's not happening at USC right now, and that reputation has definitely taken a hit at the NFL level. Well, here's an indictment. When we talk about the great linebackers that you just talked about, they were coached by an even greater linebacker in Ken Norton Jr., okay, right. a, a, a Pro Bowl, Super Bowl winning uh, linebacker. 
And when I was right. being recruited coming out of Long Beach Poly, I knew I was going to be recoached by greatness. I had the likes of a Dennis Thurman, a, 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 you know, a, a great defensive back in his own right at SC, All-American, but was also a tremendous player in the NFL with the Dallas Cowboys. So, you know, and then from there, when he leaves, who do you replace him with? Dwayne Walker, Greg Burns. So I always had great teachers around me developing. And when I look at the roster of coaches on Clay staff, dude, you're giving too many people fresh starts. It's okay to have a couple of quality control guys, but you can't have a team full of those when you don't have the experience. That was the demise of other people's programs later in their careers when they started going younger instead of surrounding themselves with experienced coaches. And the the greatest attribute to a head coach is to watch his assistant coaches get cherry-picked off for head coaching positions. But I ask you this. Is there anybody on this coaching staff at this point that you would consider to be head coach material? I, I, I don't think, think of one name. say that right now. Yeah. And that's a bad indictment when you're talking about USC and what this program stands for and how they develop players. Okay. So, again, Lynn uh, Swan, if you have a plan, and that plan includes Clay Helton moving forward, and you endorse, you, you gave him a reigning endorsement, you're hitching your wagon to this program. And that plan better result into a similar type of results that Notre Dame got. Because otherwise, you're following somebody else's direction and you don't have their personnel, which made it easier for them to have so much conviction. But if you get your wagon on the wrong person, it can set this program back for 10 years. Let me ask you this thought. Uh, Other coaches around the country know the status at USC right now. Uh, they know that Clay was on the hot seat. Um, what are the prospects of attracting quality coaches to come in here under Clay? I understand, hey, if you bring in a Tom Moore because, Lynn Swan, you had a previous relationship, I love it. That's a, that's a solid move. Um, how many of those guys are out there? Like you say, it's going to be very interesting to see what that plan is because one of the biggest knocks against Clay, you, you mentioned the phrase friends and family. What is his coaching Rolodex out there? What is he, what other coaches are he able to attract from what we've seen so far? And what's that going to be like moving forward when coaches know, hey, dude, this guy's on tenuous ground. Um, moving forward, how long is he going to be here? That's going to be one of the most interesting things that I'm going to be watching for. Yeah, and Gary, you hear it all the time. You know, coaches have mortgages. Coaches don't want to uproot their family if they don't believe that they're at least going into a stable situation where they have a good, you know, four or five years to really kind of nest and anchor themselves. It is hard. Heck, I hate moving, you know, from one city to the next, let alone from across the country and having to uproot your family. So, you know, I understand why Lynn had to come out with so much conviction, but if you're going to endorse that, then give him the resources and, you know, and, a, and a help him expand the Rolodex so that you can help attract quality coaches. Be involved in that process so that if I'm a coach and I'm making that decision and I have to go to my wife and, and, and tell my wife, hey, look, there's a great opportunity, but, you know, um, Clay's on the hot seat. I better have the support of the athletic director that we're going to give this opportunity every every chance to be successful. 
Otherwise, it is going to be tough sledding for uh, for Clay. And at this point, um, you got to throw caution to the wind. And this is a this is to me, it feels like Lynn rolling the dice that by keeping Clay at the top will show the stability it takes to attract um, not only recruits who need to make a decision very quickly in December, Gary, right? But Ooh, also yes, they do. assistant coaches. Well, you mentioned that recruiting area that is with, with with the mid-December signing period uh, coming up. Yeah, you, you, the coaches will go on the road uh, tonight. Uh, the, at midnight is when uh, they can start recruiting again. And so you've made your statement. You've, you've thrown your support behind them. But uh, that, that that's going to be coming up real quick. Okay, let, let's talk something that happened for you, Daryl. Uh, when Pete Carroll came in and the Trojans were coming off the first last place finish in conference history uh, for this program. Um, but when we talk about a culture change, and, and what the plan might be for what you've seen from Clay Helton. Um, how do you turn, and I know this is a, a loaded question, but try to answer it uh, in a couple bullet points. Uh, how do you turn this culture around? How do you do that? What are the steps that you take? Okay, first of all, Clay has to get away from treating this team like 16, 15, 16-year-old pros. He has to get back to allowing for the practices to be competitive, okay? Stop trying to preserve young legs. That's why you have quality of depth. you got to get them competing in practice because what will happen is the conditioning levels will increase, and you will see the results of that. So first and foremost, you have to open up competition at every position so that it becomes a fair playing ground and that – the 11 guys that start felt like they earned it. When Pete Carroll came in, he couldn't decipher who was the problem or who was committed. So he said, look, I'm going to start with my veterans, my experienced guys, and my seniors. I'm going to start with them and then open up competition for younger ranking guys, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors, to now compete to take their jobs away. And what he fostered was a competitive environment. But he emphasized that from the first whistle to the very last snap of practice. Everything became about competition. Even how we ran through our drills, we ran into the drills. How we took our water breaks, how efficiently we were about it. And taking mental reps from where we sat on the sideline so that we were positioned to see what the guy was doing in front of us to live vicariously. When you talk about making culture changes, it's about the veterans taking ownership. And when I say veterans, that does not require you to be a captain or a senior. If you're Chase Williams now and you see the results of how it was done then, hold yourself and your teammates accountable. If a guy does not show up to um, winter conditioning, you get on them. Before the coaches get on them, you should be on the phone getting them out of bed. If a guy is not in classroom, he's not just hurting himself. He's hurting you too in your development and growth. So the players need to hold themselves accountable. But that starts with the coaches um, empowering them by opening up competition to allow for the best 11 to play, not just guys who have seniority. I think everything starts with that, Gary. And then it comes to attention to details. The coaches have to hold themselves accountable also by making sure that every day they come with the plan and purpose of what the emphasis is going to be at on practice. 
so that you can take a thousand ideas and thoughts out of a player's head and condition them to focus on one area to get better and improve at um, from drill to drill day by day. For Pete, it was very simple. It was competition Tuesday, turnover Wednesday, and mentally no repeat Thursday. He emphasized those days so that practices became a part of your preparation for the game. When Clay develops a system that is sustainable, the players will buy in and they will conform to it. Okay, right now you cannot just go through the motions of drill to drill and not place an, a, a point of emphasis on certain things that you're trying to uh, um, address. Lastly, boy, there was a. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say. Lastly, the culture starts with how you recruit players. Recruit players that are competitive, but are well-rounded um, citizens. And the best way to do that is to not only look at their attributes on the field. But look at what else do they do. Dig deeper into their grades. See what their conduct is. Talk to their teachers. How are they in class? Do they volunteer? Do they get involved in, uh, in, in, um, in projects away from the field? You want to diversify a kid whose focus is on building character. You do those things, you hit the trifecta. It takes time, but it's very possible when you're recruiting at USC. I was just going to make a comment when you were talking about buy-in. I thought that was a very interesting comment from Cameron Smith last night. Uh, and he was asked about, yeah. do you think uh, the, the the players had buy-in this year? He goes, there's no way you go five and seven, five and seven, and have a bunch of guys who had buy-in with what the coaches were saying. You, you, then, here's another thing, Gary. Um, look, too many players have their AARP cards. Okay, they're, 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 they're on cruise lines. In other words, what I'm trying to get at is when they're injured, they stay injured. When I played for Pete, I sprained my ankle, I busted my chops to get back on the field for my brethren. Well, you don't see that with this program. Too many guys nurse. There's a difference between being hurt and being injured. If you're hurt, you can play. If you're injured, you get treatment. But you find a way to get back on the field. There are too many players in this program that, that – that you find on social media, um, donning the, the Cardinal and Gold jersey, but haven't earned their stripes on the field. You got to get those players back on the field and competing, or you got to get them out of your program. That's a part of the culture that I have to believe guys like um, Cam Smith and Porter Gustin, who, who sacrificed so much of their body to get back on the field for a five and seven season. That's where I think that their hearts are crushed and they're disappointed. Okay, let's get back to the to the plan of what we think Clay Helton and Lynn Swan can be looking to accomplish. Uh, let's go to the next area, discipline. What do you think are some of the things that they could be planning to do uh, to improve the areas of discipline? I think discipline starts with expectation. You can only hold a player accountable if they firmly understand what's expected of them as a student athlete at USC. Off the field, you've got to set a conduct and a standard, and make sure that every player is well aware of what that conduct and standard is when representing the Cardinal and Gold on and off the field. You're an ambassador of this university. On the field, I think the leadership starts with the direction, okay? Being clear and concise as to what is expected of the players is one thing, but then the players have to hold uh, take accountability for their own preparation, okay? If you do those two things, 
it naturally blends itself to the discipline that it takes to compete for a national championship. Um, and also, when players make a mistake, it's okay to make a mistake, but it's not okay to hold on to the emotions of the mistake, nor is it okay to allow that mistake to become a chronic mistake. So that goes back to the fundamentals of how you're teaching the position. The X's, the, throw the X's and O's out. It's all about the technique within the X's and O's that are going to prepare a player for clean football. And I thought Clay alluded to that in his press conference also. He thought that a lot of the systemic mistakes had to do with the way that the guys were being developed and coached up at their positions. So you talk about those three things, I think they all attribute to the discipline that it takes to get this program back on track. You start cleaning that up, it's going to be hard to beat USC when they're not beating themselves. Okay, the next point is uh, that Lynn Swan mentioned is the area of scheme. I, we, we talked about the... Uh, the promise of Clay Helton that we're going to be a physical run-first football team and the fact that we've gone away from that. Uh, we have a scheme right now, Daryl. Uh, you look at it on offense. Let's talk offense first. Uh, I think this was this was a scheme that fits quarterbacks Matt Fink and Jack Sears better than it does JT Daniels. Uh, right. And it's almost like you're trying to fit JT Daniels into it. JT has great skill. There's no doubt about it. Um, what do you anticipate moving forward? Let's say if someone like a Tom Moore is a consultant, but what are some of the things you can anticipate moving forward uh, that they will look to do with this scheme? Go back three years ago uh, to Cody Kessler, how Cody Kessler was used, utilized in the offense. Under center at times, um, utilizing tight ends. Uh, you, you, you saw a lot of bunch formations. You, you saw a lot of boots and waggles. That's how they're going to use him. Keep in mind that um, I thought JT Daniels came in, and because it took them so long to uh, position him or deem him the starter, he got caught in between two systems. I expect right. that we're going to see a better use of um, JT Daniels moving forward because you're going to see 12 personnel, two tight end, one back set. You might even see some um, additional eye formations. Maybe 20, 30% of the time you'll see those type of formations. Uh, and then you'll also see 10 personnel without a tight end, four receiver sets. So you can see crossing routes coming across the middle um, and, and, um, and inverted routes and hot routes where he's throwing on rhythm as opposed to dropping back seven, um, seven steps or from his uh, shotgun additional two steps, which gets you to seven steps, and just chucking the ball up for 50-50 balls. Um, the same scheme can be – you can flip the field and look at defensively. This boomer bust hasn't been as effective. You're not seeing the development of the outside pass rushers. It's putting too much emphasis on the interior part of the defensive line, and that's – and I, so I think that you almost have to go away from this system that Clancy runs um, where he has uh, um, three down line – or two down linemen – the two outside rushers are linebackers, and you're running five defenders, okay? I think you really have to get away from that look and maybe go to a traditional 3-4. Look at um, San Diego Chargers, Pittsburgh, um, Jacksonville, all these systems that, that, that feature four linebackers who swarm, 
but develop an outside pass rush. Even look at the Rams for that nature, where Aaron Donald gets pressure from the middle, but then they have pass rushers on the outside that can draw back, but also rush the passer. It's very critical that the scheme is adjusted to the talent that is returning. When you talk about um, EA and John Houston returning and um, Jordan Iasefa, you can run a 4-3 and be just as productive with those three at the linebacker position and, and, and put EA in the middle with Houston at the strong side and Iasefa at the weak side and be just as dominant. It doesn't take a lot to utilize this personnel, but you got to put guys in position to make plays. Too many times this year, Gary, we, we saw Christian Rector playing out of position. You got to be be able to put guys effectively in a position to to give you their best on a play in and play out basis. You do those things. I think that this program, like I said, you got the personnel in terms of players there, um, core returning. Uh, to make a, a deep run, you just got to simplify things so guys can play smart and, and not get worn out because they're asked to do too much. Okay, well, you mentioned personnel right there. Let, let's go to that as the next point that uh, that Lynn Swan identified. And if we're going to look at what uh, what the plan that we're that they're talking about could be uh, emphasizing, I don't think there's any question, Daryl, that there needs to be a renewed emphasis uh, in, in recruiting personnel. On, on both sides of the line of scrimmage. Two years ago, we saw a tremendous class on both sides. You had five offensive linemen, five defensive linemen. I truly think that the offensive line next year is going to be all five of the guys that were in that class, and I think they're going to be very good. Uh, the defensive line from that class included the likes of Tui Peloto, Peely, and Tufele. Uh, I'm going to call that a potential success so far with what they're doing, I think that group yep. can be very, very good. Uh, but you look at it this year, there is one true offensive lineman so far and one defensive lineman that they're looking at flipping over. You need some bigger numbers there. Uh, and then another area that I'm going to look at is the secondary. You're graduating a lot of guys this year, Daryl. Yeah. And so far we have one corner committed. Uh, that, that That is one area this year. We're, we're usually going to be good in defensive backs, so I don't think that that's something that uh, I'm really going to talk about. But really building this program, you talk about building it inside out and getting back that toughness of the USC football program. Mm-hmm. I would really like to see personnel, that renewed emphasis on the, on both sides of the line. But, but when you talk about personnel, Gary, usually you recruit to the scheme of your defensive coordinator. So a decision is going to have to be made very, very quickly. Will no you be retaining Clancy Pendergast uh, as your defensive coordinator? And if so, then expect to see more of the same of how this coaching staff recruits. Every other year, maybe pick up defensive linemen. The reason I say that, Gary, is because when you're not running a traditional four-down lineman, three-linebacker set, you're not going to carry nine defensive linemen. You're maybe going to carry, what, maybe at most seven, or, okay, or maybe six. You know that you can fill in the middle at the nose in the uh in, in the in the, the the three technique the tackle position so and then outside of that you may continue to load up on athletic linebackers but again you have to clearly define who are you going to be as a as a uh, a defense and what will your scheme be and then adjust the 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 le- level off your recruiting to cater to that but when you're going when you're running 
five defensive backs and you have a nickel, then you're putting a premium on defensive backs like you're putting a premium on wide receivers. And this system has worn down their defensive backs based on how they're being used. They're being used to make far too many tackles that linebackers would normally make because you need the linebackers to generate a pass rush. Therefore, you don't have a second wave. So now safeties are taking on fullbacks and, and, and um, pulling guards or pulling linemen that normally would be undertaken by linebackers. It's a yin and yang to everything. So your personnel is going to be tied into who is calling the defense. And will there be an emphasis on changing those schemes to adapt to the personnel that you have returning so that you can get quality of depth from that position? The final point we're going to make here, Daryl, based on uh, what Lynn Swan identified with the plan that he and Clay Helton have in place, is staff. And we, we, we've, we've addressed it a lot already in the podcast. Uh, but what would be some of the key places that you think uh, – need to be addressed on, on this staff moving forward. Okay. Um, I'll start with the offensive side, and I'll just go quickly through it. Uh, we talked about it's likely that you're going to have to replace the position and title of offensive coordinator. But marry your offensive coordinator to the quarterback position. Okay, so rather Brian Ellis comes – is it Brian Ellis? Correct. Uh, the uh, quarterback coach? Correct. Okay. Whether Brian Ellis is retained or you let him go so that you can marry your offensive coordinator with the, as a quarterback coach, that needs to be lock and step. Every successful quarterback I've ever known has been married to their offensive coordinator. Okay? Um, then you, you need to bring in a receiver coach or move over Kerry Colbert to coach the receivers and bring in a tight end coach that has experience uh, is an extension of the offensive line. Okay, because they go lock and step. Drevno needs to be hands-on with the offensive line. So you need to make a few rotational changes uh, on, tit- on titles on your, uh, on your offensive staff. Defensively, it's time, to, it, 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 it's time to make a change in the secondary. So you can get quality production and development. You either need to bring in uh, a defensive back coach that, that, that is a teacher or bring in a quality control guy that can teach technique while your defensive back coach works with the safeties. From a linebacker standpoint, whether Johnny Nansen flips over and goes back to coach the running backs, or allow for Johnny Nansen to emphasize coaching the interior part of the linebackers and allow for the outside linebackers to work with the uh, Kenichi Desi and the defensive line. Because ultimately, they're not working lock and step right now. They're not the techniques that they're being taught aren't producing the type of pressure that it requires in a Clancy Pendergast uh, coach defense. So, in my opinion, I would try to replace the defensive coordinator and bring in a whole new system and, and retain Johnny Nansen and Kunichi Desi on the defensive side. Offensive side, you bring in an offensive coordinator and you shift guys around. But the key positions, quarterback and um, and offensive line, you leave that to the offensive coordinator to determine who he wants to work with to work to run his offensive line. You do those things, you're no different than Notre Dame in terms of how they rebuilt. If but if you only make one change and that one change doesn't resonate throughout, then you find yourself right back in this position 
and now you compromise the growth of this program? We have t- discussed a lot in this podcast, Daryl, and I, I think that talks that kind of lends to the undertaking that is going to be taken here uh, to try to rebuild this uh, under Clay Helton. This is not going to be an, an easy proposition. It's a proposition that I don't think a lot of USC fans uh, would have been their first choice, but it's it's the situation that we are in right now based on Lynn Swan's choice uh, to, to to move forward. And like we talked about. With the recruiting class coming up and with spring ball, this isn't something you're going to be able to wait to take a lot of time with. These are changes that are going to have to be made pretty quick. Right. And this is an extended edition of our podcast, but it warrants it because there is so much to cover. And we know our fans listening that your voice can only be heard by the questions that are raised on the message boards in the way that we convey that to this administration. We believe that they're hearing your message, but we also believe that they want to give this one last chance. So all we can ask is if they make wholesale changes, that we keep an open-mindedness about the program next year because we owe it to the upcoming senior, the upcoming senior class to support them the same way that we've supported so many uh, years past. That is true. So, Daryl? Uh, look forward to seeing what happens. This is going to be a very interesting time in USC football. For Darrell Rideau, this is Gary Pasquitz. You're listening to the We Are SC Podcast.